As people are settling, I want to test. I know it's a little bit harder to hear through the mask, but does that sound pretty good? How about those with, okay, with hearing devices? Good. Okay. So, friends, friends on the path of awakening, I'm quite delighted to be talking about the second half of the factors of awakening. And it brings me delight to talk about this because it is my hope that this is directly applicable and supportive to you, as all our Dhamma talks are intended to be, to your practice. These talks are really full of detailed Dhamma support and guidance. And the hope that something in here that I have to offer will rise in the moment that you need it and give you the support in that moment. That's the intention I share with you this evening. And the seven factors of awakening have a number of different ways that they unfold. And you were hearing in Dawn's talk a few nights ago the, un, the naming of a middle batch of them as a reminder. It says, faith is the supporting condition for joy. Joy is the supporting condition for rapture. So that's where we got to in the seven factors. And then uh, Dawn fleshed that out quite a bit. Rapture is the supporting condition for tranquility. Tranquility is the supporting condition for happiness. Happiness is the supporting condition for concentration. Concentration is the supporting condition for knowledge and vision of things as they really are. So these factors that arise are onward leading, that we're putting together the components. They're both progressive and mutually supportive and balancing. They're all coming in. We started with mindfulness, and then I talked about Dhamma Vichaya, that attitude of curiosity and willingness, and then came from there into energy which is the foundation for wise effort. And then we talked about these qualities of uh, joy and rapture that bring a rapt attention, a real quality of, of um, being involved, being involved in a way that is so intimate and it brings us joy. And then if we don't get sidetracked, if we don't get confused that PT is uh, the point of the path, which as I discussed last time, it's not, it's a supportant. We don't get confused there. There's a really interesting thing that happens that this rapt attention transforms into tranquility. How does it do that? It's like there's a way that we get more and more closer and closer, more intimate with what's here in the present moment. And as we get closer and closer and more intimate, 
we discover there's nowhere else we need to go. It's talked about in the suttas as compared to a traveler who settles below a shady tree or enjoys an oasis in the desert. There's a kind of feeling like I'm in full contact with what's here. And I don't need something else. You've heard that phrase, what you need is already here. Everything you need is already here. And that, that understanding as we come in full contact with the present moment, with that rapt attention, with the full saturation of our body and the involvement, and we realize, oh, it's all here. And there's a kind of settling back. I, I can feel it very um, viscerally in my body, a kind of like settling into the back body. You know that feeling? It's like you've all had it at times on this retreat or at other ones as well. That feeling of like, oh, I'm here. I don't need to have an agenda to get somewhere else. I was thinking about uh, places and ways that we recognize this in the, in the world. And here's um, just sort of a felt sense of it. This comes from Maddie Weingast's adapt, adaptation from the Teragata, the Teragata, the nun's poems of awakening. And this is from Upasama. It's calm. How do you cross the flood? You cross calmly, one step at a time, feeling for stones. How do you cross the flood, my heart? You cross calmly, one step at a time, or not at all. Can you feel in that, that kind of being right here? And I was thinking about where I experience this sort of, uh, like similes of this or metaphors out in the world. And I was thinking of the... Um, it, when I used to live and work uh, in the area of Jackson, Wyoming, there was, there was a lot of moose there. And moose are very big. And they are very confident that nothing's going to bother them. And so they stand in the water, you know, sort of up, you know, a few feet deep, and they stand there and they just look around and then they dip their head in the water, take a big clump of moss and all this drippy stuff and they pull their head up and then they just chew on it. <laughs> and then they look around. And if you've ever watched a moose, it's a very slow-moving movie. <laughs> it's kind of like watching the lake itself. It's kind of like watching the velvety dark of the sky. The reason I like the example of the moose, though, is that there's still movement there. There's still aliveness, but there's a calm in it. No hurry. And one of the things I notice about that is there's not, um, there's not vigilance. Do you know how your practice kind of, like for a long time as you were settling in, might have had a certain vigilance to it? I got to get it right. I got to go do this a little more. I got to do that. And when we get to tranquility, this vigilance kind of starts to settle out. I sometimes experience, 
I've seen people, you can see it sometimes in people in the dining room. Half an hour later, they take the second bite. If you're the table wiper, you're kind of in angst. But other than that. <laughs> but it's like this comfort that the next bite will be there. There's no hurry. It's the same feeling as when we ring the bell. And all of a sudden you realize you don't need to go anywhere. Isn't that an amazing thing? You're waiting for the bell, you're waiting for the bell, and then it rings, and then you're like, oh, oh, there's nowhere to go. The body is settled. This calming is calming of the physical body and calming of the mind. Pasadi is the Pali term. In many ways, this tranquility is what many of us were looking for when we started practicing. We may have had like this, this sense, like my, my mind's too busy, my life's too busy, I just want a break. And that desire to have this tranquility leads um, has led to the development of many practices that are specifically to develop tranquility. A mantra practice is a practice that develops this particular of the seven factors, the factor of tranquility. When we just watch our breath, the first part of the retreat, we were cultivating tranquility and other factors as well, but it's a tranquility practice, the stillness, the peacefulness. And it's important to recognize that it's named in the context of all these other factors. And this tranquility is one factor in balance with all the others. And interestingly, sometimes in our practice, um, even though it's what uh, part of us wants is just this settledness, sometimes we skip over it. It, seemed, it feels like, oh, that's not where the real juice is. It's boring. There's nothing happening. And so part of our practice has to be to tune into it. It's not a dull state. It's not at all limp. It's actually full of ease and calm. And in this, a deep contentment can arise. And this deep contentment is the contentment of sukha. Sukha, the uh, uh, dukkha versus sukha. The sukha of contentment, of satisfactoriness, of, of uh, fullness. And this quality comes from the pasadi, the tranquility. You can just feel that, the calm when we really settle into it, when we realize there's no agenda. The tranquility becomes contentment, a kind of sweetness, a completeness a release of all restlessness, it's understood. And from this sukha, which is also supported, you might remember at the beginning of the retreat, I talked about the contentment supported by sila. And from this support of the sila and the development of the other factors, Concentration naturally arises. I 
had to read you something, but you'll be fine without it. Um, so the concentration arises, and it's interesting that concentration arises out of happiness. I think that's really important to recognize. And when we're giving, when we're encouraging that relaxation in support of concentration, when we're encouraging the kindness, the metta quality, the relationship to the moment, all of this is in support of this contentment that allows concentration to arise. One of the important things about concentration that I know you've all discovered is that it's an emergent quality. It doesn't, you can't make it happen. You set up the conditions. You put in your time, you make your effort to be mindful, to be present, to be relaxed, to be content. But how all these come together, you don't get to control. And this is so important to remember because then when you sort of have the experience, oh, my concentration's fallen apart. It's like, yep, conditions changed and there was that. And then also, when the conditions come together and the concentration is strong, if you realize it's an emergent quality, then you don't grab a hold of it and try to own it. And that's really important because when you try to own it, then the identification and the I, me, and mine get strong, which actually undercuts the concentration itself. Because for true concentration to be present, the five hindrances abate. This is the place where they no longer arise. And this is the concentration, the samadhi that you've been cultivating. You may have had experiences at other times in your life of this collectedness of mind. All of you have been practicing long enough that you've had the experience here, but you may have also had it in life. I know the first place that I had a strong um, connection with concentration was rock climbing and um, doing long climbs, and especially, this is not recommended, solo climbing. And the thing that it, but the thing that it did was that the attention was so clear. Every single moment mattered and every single contact. I think this comes also with sometimes with creative things like playing music, with art, with other physical activities, with um, some, some people have the experience through running. So all of those have a certain collected quality, but they're not wise concentration because they're not combined with these other factors. They're not combined with the wholesome intention of the Dhamma. So there's a difference, and it's important to recognize that. There isn't a substitute. You can't... You can't uh, decide, oh, I think next time I'll just paint for the month. It won't be the same. It's beautiful, but it's this combination that is, per that is, uh, is what leads, is onward leading, because those other forms of concentration that I mentioned have, are only... Um, the, they are a state that is of use and feels beautiful while it's happening. But they don't lead to wisdom. And that's the difference. That these awakening factors are understood to be coming together 
to lead to freedom, to lead to wisdom, to understanding that allows us to be free of suffering. So there's different um, aspects to the samadhi. And there's the samadhi that comes, that all of you have done, from the one-pointed attention. So you're staying with the breath again and again. You're staying with the metta phrases again and again. And the metta phrases are a little bit not quite as narrow, you might say, as being with the breath. And depending on how you do the breath, it could be very, very specific, like just this point at the end of your nose, or it could be whole body breathing. So there's some spread there as well. And then kind of at the other end of the spectrum is what is what's called momentary concentration, vipakara samadhi. And this is the concentration that we've encouraged you to move towards in the choiceless attention. Now, when we make that transition, as many of you have, one thing that happens is we notice how that single point samadhi has the tranquility more. uh, The tranquility is a larger component in it. And so when we make the transition to the choiceless attention, we often find it a little bumpy. And there's a way that often in our practice, we come back because it's very helpful. And we come back to the single pointedness to uh, support the tranquility awakening factor. And then we're able to open up to the choiceless attention with the vipakara samadhi, with that tranquility factor strong again. But it is still concentration. One of the things from the Buddha, he says this bhikkhus, develop concentration A bhikkhu who is concentrated understands things as they really are. And what does one understand as it really is? One understands as it really is, all formations are impermanent. So he's making it very clear there that the purpose of the concentration does have this element of the vipakara samadhi in it, the seeing the changing nature. And this is what distinguishes it from just cultivating tranquility. And you've also experienced the different, there's different um, depths, you might say, of concentration. There's the first stage of setting the intention and Uh, developing the skillful means of being with an object, trying to get that wily mind to stay put. And in that stage, we do a lot of navigating of the hindrances. And we do a lot of learning about our mind. And this is, sometimes we think we need to get through that. And it's not that we need to get through through it. It's that we need to see it as our practice. And when it comes back up, it's an opportunity. We see again, oh, here's what I need to navigate in this cultivation. And then at those times when the hindrances abate, we are in the place of what's called access concentration or neighborhood concentration. What that means is that the hindrances have settled out and those five, the five jhanic factors, they're called, five factors of concentration are present. So that is the vitaka and vichara that we talked about. So that's the 
the contacting and sensing. PT is present. Sukha, the contentment, the not needing to go anywhere is present. And then the final one, ekagata, which is a uh, the collectedness of the mind, the one-pointedness sometimes. It's sort of like a a way of seeing and understanding the mind as it comes into refinement. So think about in your own practice that you've been just sitting there at certain times, you're doing your practice, and then you notice that there's a shift. It might happen slowly or it might just happen in a moment. And you can feel that the hindrances aren't here. There's no greed, aversion, and delusion. And there's a sharpness of your mind. And there's an underlying contentment and presence. That is the collecting that of when you have come into this place of access concentration. The first time we arrive there, it can be quite remarkable. It's like, whoa, where am I? This is like a whole different world. All of a sudden, everything has a different kind of clarity to it. And it comes and it goes. So that's just part of, that's part of its nature, to gather together and to fall back apart. One of the and one of the hindrances I just want to mention that's really important as we have that experience of it all coming together is then clinging to the concentration itself clinging to that experience of clarity. And that's why I started with the comment about it being emergent and we can't make it happen. We just have to do our practice and trust it's arriving. It's a, it's a, it's a, a be going to be arise as conditions allow. And when we are in this balanced present state of access concentration, it's not that things stop happening. They do happen. But there's a, a settledness. And this is Ajahn Chah's speaking to this place. It says, just go into the room and put one chair in the center. Take the seat in the center of the room. Open the doors and windows and see who comes to visit. You will witness all kinds of scenes and actors, all kinds of temptation and stories imaginable. Your only job is to stay in your seat. You will see it all arise and pass. And out of this, Wisdom and understanding will come. As I see it, the mind is like a single point, the center of the universe, and mental states are like visitors who come to stay at this point for short or long periods of time. Get to know these visitors well. Become familiar with the vivid pictures they paint, the alluring stories they tell to entice you to follow them. But do not give up your seat. It is the only chair around. This, is re this really points to the way concentration is a tool, is one of the factors. And it, it, when combined with the other ones, you can feel in what he was saying there, that there's that curiosity is there. The energy to maintain yourself and stay steady in the seat is there. You can hear in him these things coming together. 
I mentioned the other day that sometimes if those other factors aren't there, the concentration combined often with the tranquility can lead to a sinking mind. And so this is when that settledness, that not much happening um, doesn't, it, it kind of falls into a, like not really paying attention, not being curious enough, not having enough energy. And it can get really drifty and spacey. It can even get very heavy. It can even feel kind of dour, kind of um, unpleasant in a certain way. And when that happens, that's when sometimes that happens as a result of a lot of striving, a lot of trying to make something happening. Sometimes it happens simply because those other factors have lost their balance in this. And it's really important to recognize when that happens and to bring the energy back in. So balancing the concentration with ease and with curiosity, a kind of persistence, mindfulness, sati still being there. And when these factors are there and this concentration is arising, it's spoken in the suttas like a lake in which a cool spring comes welling up and suffuses and freshens the lake. You've had that experience where there's kind of like, there's a momentum and it there's a um, yeah a momentum, but a freshness to the moment. I think that's why, and this is actually speaking a uh, direct simile, speaking of a jonic state. But I think it applies to this collectedness. There's a feeling of that each moment has a freshness to it, and we're being uh, awashed like refreshed from this uh, spring coming in from the middle of our lake. And if we keep going, this is where pass, going from access concentration, natural, if we kept going in more of a cultivation of the concentration and the tranquility, we would go towards the jhanas, towards these states of absorption, and the absorption states are, can be very, very useful to cultivate and to have the experience of, because what they do is they deepen the experience of the sukha, the contentment and the tranquility. And different schools, traditions of Buddhism have different views about the jhanas. Some say, oh, you must do jhanas to practice. Other ones say, the jhanas, that's a real detour. Don't spend time there. Stay, stay on track with the vipassana. So it's really not, it's not, and clearly people have gotten enlightened both ways because there's teachers in both places. So it's really a matter, and some of you are at some point may practice more specifically with the jhanas, and it's not required. So it's just good to know that they're there and that they're sort of taking this one factor along with the tranquility factor and really uh, emphasizing that for a period of time. But always, in all traditions, the point of the concentration is to point it towards seeing impermanence, seeing things the way they are. It is never an end in itself. But with the samadhi, we do gain the, this peace and this ease and the tranquility takes on a deeper dimension and the mind becomes more pliable and available for clarity. It becomes able to see the impermanence. It's where insight arises with this concentration and this clarity. 
Practitioners develop concentration. A practitioner who is concentrated understands things as they really are. And then from the concentration, we move into equanimity. Again, equanimity is an emergent quality. It's the last of the seven factors. And it is also in the series of unfoldings. It's the last one before uh, there's release. It's understood that the seven factors, along with seclusion, dispassion, lead to liberation. And the equanimity continues this deepening of the letting go that was present, that really started to show up in the tranquility. This deep letting go. Equanimity is the quality of standing in the middle of everything, but staying steady in it. And it's supported by renunciation and patience, as well as the other factors. The Buddha describes a mind filled with equanimity as abundant, exalted, immeasurable, without hostility, and without ill will. I love that explanation. It sounds really good. (laughs) It's completely balanced, not pulled or pushed in any way. Other words, spacious, even, open, unshakability and steadiness. Steady, like the roots of a tree. It's a poem from Rumi that what's not here. I start out on this road, call it love or emptiness. I only know what's not here. Resentment seeds, back scratching greed, worrying about outcome fear of people. When a bird gets free, it does not go for remnants left on the bottom of the cage. Close by, I'm rain, far off a cloud of fire. I seem restless, but I am deeply at ease. Branches tremble, the roots are still. I am a universe and a handful of dirt, whole when totally demolished. Talk about choices does not apply to me. While intelligence considers options, I am somewhere lost in the wind. For me, this quality of equanimity is right, is the whole poem, but right there in the middle, Branches tremble, the roots are still. I think that image is really important because equanimity does not need the world to stop. It has the stillness in the roots, the steadiness actually has no objection to the world continuing to be its wily, unreliable, impermanent self. This ability to be steady with the waving branches is the result of insight and understanding, the result of wisdom and expression of that as well as being a support for it continuing to deepen. Clear, centered, relaxed. Sense of well-being and vitality. 
like a ballast in a ship that keeps us upright, keeps us steady. And in our daily lives and also here, it gives us the balance we need to navigate the vicissitudes, which you probably are familiar with. Praise and blame, gain and loss, fame and disrepute, pleasure and pain. You've probably experienced most or all of those right here on the retreat, real or imagined. And to have a steadiness through that, From the Buddha, he talks to Rahula, his son, and he says, develop meditation that is like the earth. For then agreeable and disagreeable sensory impressions will not take charge of your mind. Just as when people throw out what is clean or, or unclean on the earth, excrement, urine, saliva, pus, or blood, the earth is not horrified, humiliated, or disgusted by it. In the same way, agreeable and disagreeable sensory impressions will not take charge of your mind when you develop meditation like the earth. And he goes on to use descriptions like water, like space. I had the experience uh, some time ago now. I was on retreat. I was on a, it was a two-week retreat and about, uh, about five days into the retreat, I got the phone call that some of you may have received at some point in your life. I know I'm not alone in this. But it was an interesting place to receive the phone call from at the the number, you know, the emergency, you know, the retreat manager's office, that the test had come back positive and I did have cancer. And there I was in my two-week retreat, and there's a worldly wind come, come to get you. And it was very, very interesting. And to watch what the mind did. I was steady enough at that point to have some ability to be with what was unfolding. And I stayed on retreat. I got permission to use the office about 15 minutes a day to make the necessary follow-up phone calls and stuff like that. And then... I watched. I watched what my mind did with it. I watched the stories as they came and as I let them go. I watched the arising and passing. It was incredibly beneficial. Incredibly. And my teacher at the time that I was on retreat with, Andrea Fella, she was like, do you want to leave? I was like, no, the conditions are not going to be better somewhere else. This is as good as it gets. What, I'm going to go home and spin around in my mind? Here, at least I've got a steadiness. And it was very, very helpful. And it grew a lot of confidence in me that my mind could tolerate that news. It could tolerate. And that it could have still roots. Recognizing impermanence. As someone once said, and I can't remember who, relax, nothing is under control. And just so you don't wander around worried, I got it all taken care of by the end of the retreat. Surgery was scheduled, the follow-ups were scheduled, and I'm long since clear of it. But I've had the good fortune of having a remarkable number of 
events, we'll call them. I once had to leave here to teaching to go have emergency surgery in some local hospital for an abdominal problem. Didn't know what it was. And it was such a beautiful experience of feeling the compassion and care of the people in the hospital and discovering I really was completely okay. So what these things did for me, these events, is they grew my faith, my confidence in the practice that when the wind blows in our branches, we get to discover how deep and strong and still our roots are. Don't underestimate that. The strongest trees are the ones that have the wind blowing in them. There was a woman I met who maybe as part of my inspiration, she was quite a while ago. It was maybe like 15 years ago, but when she was 30... When she was 31, she'd had been in a head-on collision with, um, with a, a drunk driver. And since that time, she'd had 31 surgeries. And when I saw her, she was, she was, we were on a retreat together, and she was so happy. She was just having such a good time because it'd be the, been the first time in years that she wasn't in a scooter and was able to walk the about 50 yards from the meditation hall to the dining hall. And she was so amused and delighted by that and figured it wasn't, wouldn't last that long. But it was an amazing change for her. She hadn't gotten to do that. And she was one of the... Uh, I don't know, one of the most easeful, happy people that I think I've ever met. She had been through so much that nothing was going to knock her over. I'm telling you these rather extreme stories because sometimes we can think in our practice when something starts knocking us around that something has gone wrong that that's not what's supposed to be happening. But it's what we practice for. It's what we practice for. To be free of fear, to be free of the fear of impermanence. There's a... um, a little graphic that I've shared with some of you that I want to share with you, which is that there's um, a bandwidth. And we all have a bandwidth. And life functions for the most part within the bandwidth. And then occasionally things happen. Maybe something happened this week like that. Something happens that knocks out of the bandwidth. And we're uncomfortable. And we don't like it. And our natural instinct is to try to fix the world, fix the conditions, fix our attitude, do something to smush it back into our bandwidth so that it's back within the zone where we're comfortable. And the, and the Buddha, in his brilliance, said, stop. Stop trying to smush the world into your bandwidth. If something goes out of your bandwidth, if at all possible, and especially if something goes out just a little, there is the opportunity to stretch your bandwidth. Allow that to be included. And this is happening constantly for you. When you sit on the cushion and you have discomfort in your body, It's bumped out a little, and you have the opportunity to stretch. When your mind is doing something that is unpleasant, you can stretch a little. And then the next time, 
when it goes a little further, it went, you've stretched, and then something else, and it stretches a little more. And I like the vision, the understanding of awakening as the bandwidth expands so much that it disappears and everything is workable. This is why it's so important to recognize that the unpredictable, the unpleasant, the challenging is such an important part. The tree gets stronger because of the winds that blow through it. And this is a very real kind of equanimity we're cultivating here. Not a false kind of, I'm fine. I'm fine. How many times have we said somebody asks you, are you okay? How are you doing? I'm fine. Not really. But we say it as if that's true. And it's like, no, it's like to actually dig down deep inside and find the okayness that is here. Was it who was talking about building the container, the pot of, of okayness? Ajahn Chah says this about the, the um, false equanimity. Once I had a disciple who stayed in a grass-roofed hut. It rained often that rainy season, and one day a strong wind blew off half the roof. He did not bother to fix it and just let it rain in. Several days passed, and I asked him about his hut. He said he was practicing non-clinging. This is non-clinging without wisdom. It is about the same as the equanimity of a water buffalo. <laughs> so that's not what we're talking about, which is good to name, because sometimes we can think that the idea is that, like, everything's okay, and that nothing needs to be responded to or taken care of. When I told the story about being on retreat, I did the things, I got permission and I used the phone and I did the things that needed to be done. It wasn't about ignoring. It was about actually being responsive in a skillful way and realizing how much of it there's not something to do anything about. A lot of the things that I've been talking about are different forms, and there's a lot more. I'm sure you've all spent time working with and thinking about equanimity. And this worldly equanimity is very much one of the uh, beautiful results of our practice. That these factors come together, and they have this resultant equanimity that lets us move through the world without being afraid. The Buddha said, as a solid mass of rock is not stirred by the wind, so a sage is not moved by praise and blame. As a deep lake is clear and undisturbed, so a sage becomes clear upon hearing the Dharma. Virtuous people always let go, they don't prattle about pleasures and desires. Touched by happiness and then by suffering, the sage shows no sign of being elated or depressed. From the Dhammapada. And there is also an unworldly equanimity. And that's the equanimity that sometimes comes in our practice. It's typically associated with the fourth jhana, but it also, I think, happens just, you've had this experience here on retreat where there's like this deep okayness. The, uh, you know, you're sitting quietly and then all the, you know, it's early in the morning and lots of people come in and out of the hall and you're okay. 
the bell rings or it doesn't, you're okay. There's an announcement here at the front of the room and you're okay. This is the uh, kind of uh, steadiness of mind that is unshakable. I only have a few minutes, so I'm just going to name that there's two things that the equanimity is based on. The wisdom. Remember I said there was wisdom? And it's based on two specific things. One, understanding the causes and conditions. The impersonal nature of causes and conditions. And that they are infinite and they are arising in this moment. And that it is uh, part of the wisdom of seeing that without thinking that something has gone wrong. And the other piece of wisdom is the one we've talked about as well, the understanding of not-self, of non-identification, of just not getting caught up in the story of me. Both of these slowly erode the sense of uh, being pushed around by the worldly winds. This is from Ajahn Chah. He says, some people want to make the mind peaceful, peaceful, but don't know what true peace really is. They don't know the peaceful mind. There are two kinds of peacefulness. One is the peace that comes through samadhi. The other is the peace that comes from panya. The mind that is peaceful through samadhi only is still deluded. The peace that comes through the practice of samadhi alone is dependent on the mind being separated from mind objects. If you have reached the necessary level of calm, then withdraw from that. The Buddha didn't teach to practice samadhi with delusion. If you are practicing like that, then stop. If the mind has achieved calm, then use it as a basis for contemplation. Contemplate the peace of concentration itself and use it to, to connect the mind with and reflect upon the different mind objects which it experiences. Sights, smells, tastes, tactile sensations, and the mind. When you are practicing with the mind in this way, the mind becomes considerably more refined than when you develop samadhi alone. The mind becomes very powerful and no longer tries to run away. With such energy, you become fearless. In the past, you were scared to experience anything, but now you know mind objects as they are and are no longer afraid. You know your strength of mind and are unafraid. So when the mind is at its most calm, what should you do? Train it. Practice with it. Don't be scared of things. Don't attach. And I think I'll end with this quote from Ajahn Jumian. This whole collection of the factors coming together, creating the balanced mind. At some point, the mind becomes so clear and balanced that whatever arises is seen and left untouched with no interference. One ceases to focus on any particular content and all is seen simply as mind and matter, an empty process arising and passing away of its own. A perfect balance of mind with no reactions there is no longer any doing. And when we have these experiences, these are temporary experiences of the awakened ones. This give, these give us a taste, a foretaste 
And with them, there's a knowing of us, a knowing that what the worldly, that clinging to worldly things is not what will bring us happiness. That letting go, letting the wind blow through our hair, through our branches, being in the world, but not of it, as some say. So let's sit for a moment, let the words settle. Thank you for your kind attention. We have a walking period and then we'll have our final sit for those who have the energy to continue. May your branches tremble and your roots grow deep. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.